0: The Bowery Boys, episode 185, Adventures on Governor's Island. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys
1: is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys.
0: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We are continuing our celebration of our eighth year of podcast recording by revisiting a couple places that we have recorded about in the past. In the last episode, we revisited the Flatiron building, which we recorded at
1: the end of our first season. But today, we're heading out to Governor's Island, which Greg
0: just reminded me before we started recording, was only our sixth episode. The reason that Governor's Island makes an appealing place to revisit is because when we recorded the show in 2007, it was a very different place than it is today. Back then, it had just fairly recently, within the past few years, been reopened to the public and was not very developed. Today, it's a place that is one of the hot spots for New Yorkers during the summer with weekly festivals and events.
1: Weekly, even daily. When we first recorded back in 2007, you could really only visit Governor's Island on the weekend. But today, in 2015, during the summer season, you can head out
0: to Governor's Island every day of the week. But it also has an incredible history that literally goes back to the very beginning Mm -hmm. of almost 400 years. We're going back to the beginning. The history of Governor's Island is perhaps a little less known than that of Ellis Island or Liberty Island, but it's no less important, especially in what it represents, which is the defense of New York and the defense of the United States. And some of its oldest structures are actually a product of America's first struggles with the British.
1: What I find interesting about the island, Greg, is that it went from being this sort of natural preserve to serving this military function, and has today sort of come back to
0: nature. This history is action-packed, sometimes violent, revolutionary, and filled with so much adventure. So we thought that we would have an adventure of our own out on Governor's Island, and so our second half of the show will be recorded On location. Ooh. So, listener, just sit right back and you'll
1: hear a tale. A tale of Governor's Isle.
0: So, Tom. Yes. Before we jump into the history of Governor's Island here, I think we need to lay out the ground rules. Right, because this is a bit of an adventure
1: today. We're going to first give an overview of the history of the island. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to head down to the maritime terminal and hop on a ferry... And head straight over for the island, and then take a little walk around the island and talk about in greater detail many
0: of these historic sites that you can visit today. So get us started with the situate. Now, since it's an island in the middle of the New York Harbor, mm, and not go- exactly middle of New York. Well, Harbor. we don't have a we don't have our coordinates exactly, but okay. so it's not that kind of situate. But uh, give us some background. Well, today the island is 172
1: acres large, right? It's located in New York Bay off the southern tip of Manhattan, between Manhattan and Brooklyn. Governor's Island is legally part of Manhattan, even though Uh, it's closer to Brooklyn.
0: It's quite close. You could take a small rowboat and get there.
1: You could, because you'd only be rowing 366 meters across the Buttermilk Channel. Sounds like delicious
0: pancakes are made in the channel.
1: I don't know that you'd want to eat any of the pancakes (laughs) made in the channel unless you were really, really hungry and had been out all night. (laughs) Okay. But back to our story, the island is located 732 meters from Manhattan. All this to say, Greg, that it is still close to the tip of Manhattan, but it's much closer to Brooklyn. To get there today, you head down, if you are in Manhattan, down to the Battery Maritime Building, and you can take a Governor's Island Ferry, or you could take it from the Brooklyn side from Pier 6 in Brooklyn Bridge Park. Note that the ferries run every day of the week now. During the summer months, from late May until late September, the island is open seven days a week for visitors. The ferries run every day, but they're much more frequent on the weekend, and The early morning ferries, the first ferries of the day on the weekend, are free. So if you want to head out to visit for yourself, take one of those early morning ferries for a free ride. The island itself is shaped like an ice cream cone, okay? (laughs) If you can imagine an ice cream cone with a a sugar cone, you know, not the the standard cone, but the sugar cone, pointed sort of north by northeast, and the scoop of ice cream on the top is the old part of the island. That is the original governor's island. That's where most of the historic sites are today. The cone is actually larger than the older part, and it's much newer. It was built later
0: on landfill. So I happen to know that this story really does go back to the very beginning, to the arrival of the Dutch into New York Harbor. So Well, uh-
1: actually, it goes back farther than that to the Native Americans who were living here, especially the Lenape Indians who were attracted to it the possibilities for fishing and for hunting and for gathering nuts, because the island was beloved for its various nut trees, including the oak trees and chestnut and hickory trees that were out there. So much so that the Algonquin called it Paganack. Paganak, Paganak, which the Dutch would loosely translate, um, when they arrived in the 1620s, to Noten Island or Nutten Island. <laughs>
0: so, so an island of nuts. An island of nuts. Well, that, that's a name that could be prescribed to a lot of islands in New York City. <laughs> Including Manhattan. <laughs> but, but no, this
1: Nut Island, or Nutten Island... In May of 1624, after a two-month journey from Holland, the vessel, the New Netherland, arrived here in New York Harbor, carrying the first batch of settlers, in this case Walloons, who were French-speaking refugees from today's Belgium, which was at the time part of the Netherlands. So these were the people that first arrived and lived on Nutan N- Island? Well, not just in Nut Island. They came over from the Netherlands under the direction of Cornelius May, who was the first director of New Netherlands. These were 30 families. So May sends them off, right, to scout out land and to occupy the land that would become the New Netherlands. So some went up to today's Connecticut, others off to Delaware, New Jersey, some up around Albany, and eight people, eight, eight, eight stayed in the land that is today's New York City. And would become the, the settlement of New Amsterdam. And so because there were only eight people, they didn't really feel like settling on Manhattan Island, right? Which was just thick with forest.
0: Well, it was, yeah, it was vast and you were setting yourself up for possible invasion right? Uh, by the native Lenape so where better to protect themselves than
1: that little island that they could see right off the southern tip there nut island
0: so the dutch settlement that was before manhattan was on nut N- island
1: that's right. Just eight of them. But soon thereafter, about three months later, three more ships would join them, including 45 more settlers who would stay here. They brought with them more than a hundred animals and they raised them here on Nutton Island and basically developed a farm that grew in size. But they needed more space, needed more access to water and, and such. And so they decided to move the entire
0: shebang off the island and over to the island of Manhattan. Well, now they had strength in numbers, so that makes sense, obviously. And they were going to outgrow this rather small island eventually, so...
1: But the Dutch would continue to use the island. In fact, the fifth director of New Amsterdam, a man named Wouter van Twiller, in 1637, would purchase Nutten Island, along with a handful of other islands, including today's Wards Island and Welfare Island, and 15,000 acres of today's Long Island, he would purchase those for his own use. (laughs) The the Dutch government wasn't too happy about this, and the next year they confiscated it in 1638 from van Twiller. They felt van Swindled.
0: (laughs) So what happened to the island after? after the Dutch left, and with the arrival of the British?
1: Well, the British saw two possibilities. They saw it as a great retreat for their directors, and it was actually during this period that they would set up residences for, like, vacation homes and refer to it as Governor's Island, although it wouldn't have its name officially changed until 1784 under the Americans. However, perhaps more importantly, it was the British who also saw the strategic position of Governor's Island, as something that they could really use as a fort and as something to protect
0: their settlement. Well, as Manhattan, yes, becomes this more vital port area. And, you know, you also have towns like Brooklyn and all these other little developments around the area. They do need to, like, beef up the defenses right. of, this, of this place. And that would also come into play, obviously, during the Revolutionary War, when the Continental
1: Army in April of 1776 built up a sort of rudimentary fort in the middle of the island and pointed some cannons out to protect themselves and sort of scare away the British. And they would engage in July of 1776 with British ships that were heading for the Hudson River, and they damaged them enough to scare away subsequent trips up towards, say, the East River. This exchange of cannon fire coming from Governor's Island is credited from sort of keeping the British ships at bay during the Battle of Brooklyn, or the Battle Mm -hmm. of Long Island, in which Washington retreated across the East River. So they say that because of the Continental Army's presence on Governor's Island during that battle, and before that battle, Washington's troops could get away.
0: So this was basically an earthen-type fort, nothing very advanced, of course, but obviously well-built enough that it was able to work at least effectively in that particular skirmish. With Washington and the Continental
1: Army leaving town, the control of Governor's Island and of the city would return to the British and remain that way until evacuation day in 1783. Although there would be further skirmishes between Washington's forces right down at Fort George, otherwise known as Fort Amsterdam, at the, at the tip of Manhattan down yeah. in Battery Park. Washington's forces would be there, and they'd be sort of exchanging fire with the British troops who were based on Governor's Island. So can you imagine <laughs> that sort of...
0: So they were actually like firing at each
1: other. Basically battling, sending things over today's Staten Island ferry terminal. <laughs> <laughs> Dramatic. After the war, the victorious American government decided that, you know, we really need to reinforce our most important ports along the eastern seaboard. So they set up not just here on Governor's Island, but elsewhere up up and down the eastern coastline, a series of forts and it was under the federal government and New York State that they constructed in 1794 Fort Jay, and this was the first major fort in the center of Governors Island, and it was built atop the sort of mounds uh, that had been used for uh, as a sort of rudimentary fort during for those, the revolution, right? For those uh,
0: initial skirmishes during the war, so they were so afraid, of course, everyone around in the New York area and the new American government that New York would be recaptured, right? You know, they didn't want to lose it again. There's not only strategically but also symbolically. So they built a lot of forts up and down the the harbor and up the rivers.
1: And it wasn't just Fort Jay that they constructed in the middle of Governors Island because just 7 years later they started constructing Castle Williams, which they built Also here on Governor's Island, this one, a giant circular fort uh, nicknamed the Cheesebox because of its circular design. It's built of red sandstone. It stands uh, 40 feet tall with 8-foot-thick walls and about a 200-foot-diameter interior. It was built atop a rocky extension of the island facing the harbor. And cannons could be positioned, more than 100 cannons, almost entirely all the way around it. Both of these forts, Fort Jay and Castle Williams, still exist today on the island and can be visited, and we will be heading there shortly.
0: So these were built up and ready for a possible war, the war that would become the War of 1812, but it never arrived in New York Harbor. No.
1: Well, thanks to these forts, there was a strong defense here. And other cities, notably, say, Washington, D.C., that did not have the same strategic defense system, did not escape damage during the war. Of course,
0: Washington, D.C. would be burned to the Mm. ground. So, just to quickly review what you've said thus far, the island started out as an initial settlement where people lived, but then quickly was seen for its more strategic value. Then for much of the British period and the early 19th century here, Mm -hmm. it became known primarily for fortifications, these two forts. There's Fort J, the star-shaped fort that is located in the center of the island and on the highest point, Right. right? And then Castle Williams, Which is the... Don't be afraid to say cheese box. The cheese box. Right. The cheese box and the star. And they were both constructed within
1: about 15 years of each other.
0: Now, I'm not going to get into a detailed biography here of John Jay, whose name graced Fort Jay. But at the beginning of the 19th century, he fell out of fashion. So they actually renamed it to Fort Columbus. So the next major war in American history here in the mid-19th century is, of course, the Civil War. And although the battles of the war never came to New York City... Although the Civil War draft riots could be argued as one of the battles that erupted in the middle of town, the islands of New York City were actually crucial to the war, and especially here at Governor's Island, which was used for troop education and training. They also refashioned and refitted the defenses here just in case something would come up to New York. More disturbingly, both of these forts would be used as a prison.
1: Wait, what kind of prisoners? Who who was imprisoned here?
0: Confederate soldiers who were captured in battle, and I mean, there were so many of them that they were sent to several different places. But here on Governor's Island, there were two prisons. The one in Fort Jay was used for the officers and there was also a hospital there as well mm-hmm. but but the less decorated soldiers would be kept here in castle williams so they both served as prisons for much of the war but when
1: you visit these sites today one of them certainly looks more comfortable than the other because when you step inside the prison in, inside castle williams it it doesn't look like it would have been a very comfortable stay.
0: (laughs) No. Well, I mean, prisons in the first place in the mid-19th century in New York are no picnic, right? Right. Because you're, think of the tombs, think of Blackwell's Island. So these would be incredibly overcrowded. Both of them. Both of them. Although situations were very dire here at Castle Williams, where sometimes up to 700 men would be imprisoned here and would be prone to disease, for instance, which would sweep through a prison and kill people. So over at Fort Columbia. Columbus in that prison hospital. Oh, Fort J. The Fort Columbus. Today's sure. today's Fort J., Fort Columbus in the nineteenth right. century. The most prominent Confederate general to ever die in Union captivity died here in Fort Columbus and on Governor's Island, a man named H. C. Whiting. Now, after the Civil War, things were quieting down. It still remained a military headquarters, and Castle Williams actually remained a prison. But post-Civil War, it became more of a place for the army officers to live. So an unusual feature arrives on the island in the 1870s with these lines of officers' homes. The biggest one, of course, uh, facing this big open green that would be called Colonel's Row. In 1890, another set of homes would be built called Regimental Row. So these are strange houses because they look like they're kind of plucked from the countryside. And there's just like a a steady row of them. And they're all really gorgeous. But they just don't look like they're Part of what you envision New York City to be, especially in the late 19th century.
1: No, they seem to have been dropped in from another time in another place entirely. It seems like you're visiting this preserved little Victorian mm-hmm. village, and it's made extra weird today in, in that nobody's living there, but at the
0: time they would have been filled with officers. Yeah, and a thriving family life. They were almost ushered off the island in the 1890s because Governor's Island was looked at to be turned into the new. Immigration station now had been in Castle Garden, and as we know, it then became Ellis Island. But there was mm-hmm. a moment when Governor's Island was going to be completely transformed, and I'm sure they would have gotten rid of those forts. So, what
1: prevented that from happening?
0: Well, a savior of Governor's Island would arrive in the early 20th century, a man named Elihu Root who was a Secretary of War under William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. Now, being the Secretary of War, he also was proud of the grand traditions of American warfare. And he was really interested in preserving these older structures, these two key forts out on what? Governor's Island. Was he only concerned about the forts, or did he also want to preserve the homes? Well, he wanted to preserve the homes. He wanted to expand the whole place, in fact. so Because at uh, the time, again, it's still just what we were calling the ice cream scoop. Right. Well, here comes the cone ah. of the ice cream cone as the island expands from 70 acres to 170 acres. And do you know how they all of a sudden magically conjured up this land? Let me think. This is natural land? It's actually... Yes, natural land. Yeah, Natural land. It wasn't and- coming from a park? Not from a park. And we're talking early 1900s, the first decade.
1: Well, there was a a lot of construction happening at this time. I suppose if we're talking in the first decade, we're also talking about the opening of the subway.
0: That's it. So the landfill came, I believe, almost entirely. I'm sure it could have come from various places, but was largely comprised of excavations from the New York subway. So... Uh Something practical. Something to think about when you're walking around out there. Now, Mr. Root also brought back that name, so he changed the name of Fort Columbus back to Fort Jay, because he was a big fan of of Mr. Jay. Well, with good reason. He wanted the whole island landscaped, and even brought in, of course, the famed architectural firm of McKim, Mead & White. To redesign it, because, of course, you had a whole new area, right, that you had to build upon. And they knew how to sculpt some land. It would take a while for a lot of these plans to roll out. But by 1929 came their most famous structure on the island, which is called Liggett Hall, which is a grand barracks. It's a gigantic building. I actually read one place it's the lo- it was the longest building in the world when it was constructed in 1929. It's a very very long building that was the first major building that was built upon this landfill area.
1: Okay, so Liggett Hall is there at the dividing line between the old and
0: the new Governor's Island. What did they do with the rest of the area, the rest of the cone? Well, it took on a curious role. As New York's very first airstrip, because we're now at the dawning of the age of flight. It was from here in 1909, in fact, that Wilbur Wright flew one of his planes, the inventor of flight, or one wow. of the inventors of flight, took a little plane from Governor's Island and zipped around the Statue of Liberty, and then on another flight flew it all the way up to Grant's tomb. And we'll explore
1: even deeper this aviation history um, once we're out on the island. So
0: Governor's Island was used heavily, of course, during the World Wars, especially World War II. The shift in ownership, if you will, happens 50 years ago this year in 1965. That is the year the Army moved off the island to other bases, and the Coast Guard came in. And this would be the largest U.S. Coast Guard base in the world. Wow. And what's interesting with this is they brought in a ton more people than the army had had here. And so you had whole families. The population was anywhere between 3,500 and 4,000 people. So they really had a whole Coast Guard village living out yeah. here on the island. There were a lot more amenities that were out here.
1: And we'll talk about some of the more surprising amenities mm-hmm. that they built in the 1960s.
0: But essentially it became a, a little pocket community, almost like a small town from another dimension. Because keep in mind what's happening across the water in New York City in the 1970s. You know, this is a leafy haven over here, this, uh, this wonderful small community. And it was kind of a surreal contrast with what's happening in the city. Well, the Coast Guard stayed until 1996, and then around that time, most of the residents left, although there were some vestiges of some services on into the new century. But by the year 2000, it was still owned by the federal government, but it was essentially an abandoned island with no new tenants. So just flash forward a few more years to January 31st, 2003, when the government officially transferred it back over to the city. Of New York from President George W. Bush to Mayor Michael Bloomberg for $1. The best dollar that Mike ever spent. (laughs) Oh, but I should add, it was not the whole island. It was only 150 acres of the island because... So that should have been 90 cents. (laughs) That should have been about 90 cents, sorry. The 22 acres that comprise Castle Williams and Fort Jay and some of the parade ground, that would be assigned over to the National Park Service, and it's still in their hands today. So these are the oldest,
1: most historic sites on the island, and those are
0: still controlled by the Parks Department. Yes, those are national monuments. Those are of national significance. So what was the city going to do with the the rest of the island then? Well, and there were a few plans floated through. One of them, I think, that's kind of the most interesting is a city university was going to move out here and have it be a campus. I mean, it already looks like a campus, Right. right? It would fit right in. It was eventually decided to make it more of a sort of a public place, almost like a public park, except a public park with a bunch of abandoned, unusual structures all around it. (laughs) So today, the public portion of the park is administered by the Trust for Governor's Island, and it has gone through some careful and gradual changes over the past few years. You know, when we first recorded our Governor's Island podcast in 2007, there were not a lot of activities. You were sort of allowed to run around and explore. And that's Um, kind of what made it so alluring, is that you could walk into some of these old homes and just kind of like... Nose around. Walk up and down staircases, remember? Yeah. To their credit, you can kind of still do that to a certain extent today. But they, of course, are developing that South Park into a brand new park with winding paths. Today, you can go out there for various music festivals, art festivals. Two times a year, they have the Jazz Age Lawn Party, which is cool. The Figment Art Group is also out there.
1: The city has turned it into something that they refer to as a playground for the arts, a place that is home to all manner of different sorts of artistic groups. So I feel like any weekend, you could just head out and stroll around, mm-hmm. and you will fall upon some rather surprising variety
0: of different artistic options. Well, instead of just imagining that, Tom, maybe right. Right now is our opportunity to go out to the island and explore it firsthand. Let's do it.
1: And it's early enough in the day that we can catch one of those free ferries.
0: Oh, yes. We're going to go catch the free ferry right now. At 10 a.m. So you'll hear about our adventures on Governor's Island after the commercial break. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen... Search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. And now, let's go to Governor's Island.
1: So Greg and I have just boarded the ferry on a Sunday morning.
0: Would you say that this is like Bowery Boys on the road right here? On the water. On the (laughs) the waterfront, (laughs) heading over right now to to Governor's Island. We can see it. It's just it's just right there, Greg. Now, there are actually two ferries that you can take to get to Governor's Island on the Brooklyn side. You can go to a ferry landing that is in Brooklyn Bridge Park, and that's a fairly new park. And that just crosses that buttermilk channel we were talking about before. <laughs> mm, the buttermilk channel. On the Manhattan side, however, I think it's a little bit more interesting and more dramatic because you actually leave from the Jade Jewel Box that is the Maritime Building, which was uh, constructed in 1908-1909. And, Tom, how would you describe the, the Maritime? It's like it's... Uh... Well, it's a beautiful Beaux-Arts building with three
1: docks, dripping in late 19th century ornamentation, and painted in beautiful shades of
0: olive green with some, uh, with some salmon touches. Do you know, Thomas, this was actually built for the ferry that took you down to Brooklyn, down to like 39th Street. So, you know, the Bay Ridge area, all of the docks and piers and industries along the water. So, But the service was eliminated in 1938. And so unfortunately, this building kind of went to rot a little bit. Today, they are building a glass addition to the top of it, which looks like it's almost completed. I'm glad to see that it's back in business. And as we're standing here on the ferry, ready to head just, what, just like a three, four, five-minute ride across the Channel. Yeah, if we had a rowboat, we could just go right now, and that would be kind of awesome.
1: As we're standing here, though, a Staten Island ferry, which is so large, so massive, and so orange in comparison, (laughs) is pulling into its terminal, which is located just next to the Governor's Island Terminal. So really, it abuts it. It's pulling in, and we're ready to pull off. And as we're getting closer, Greg, I'm just noticing how it looks like we're headed to this idyllic little town. Look, there's rolling green hills behind
0: charming little brick buildings. It contrasts so immediately, of course, because then you turn the other way and you have there's downtown Manhattan in all of its financial glory. And then you turn left, I mean, as you as your eyes gaze upon the Statue of Liberty and then turn to see Governor's Island, and it just, it seems like it's not even real. Where are we going? Oh, <laughs> well, and we're here. It's time to get off the ferry. So you donk around the north side of the island, which is the oldest part. In fact, when you get off, you can sort of see a little bit of Fort Jay and the tippy top of Leggett Hall. So let's get off this boat and start doing some exploring. So we walked off the
1: ferry and we've walked straight up some stairs to a gathering place called Soyson's Landing, where we're standing in front of a map of Governor's Island to kind of orientate ourselves.
0: And so obviously you can't see it, but I want to describe it as a gigantic ice cream cone. Now, this particular map is a a light green, so I'm going to call it the pistachio part of the cone here. This is the oldest section that contains the two forts. It contains three rows of former homes of military officers and a lot of other administration buildings, as well as two churches.
1: So all of the main historical sites that one can visit today and that we'll be visiting right now are located in the scoop of ice cream. Let's head there now. We've made our way up to the side of Fort J, which is the oldest remaining structure on the island. Um, and we're crossing over the moat now to get inside Fort J.
0: So now we're walking into Fort J, and it kind of throws you off a little bit because that front is so imposing and sort of looks like you imagine a fort would look in, in your fantasies. But when you get inside, all of a sudden things change because... That five-star fort that you see on the exterior, once you get inside, becomes a square, essentially. It's, it's it's four structures on the other side that were the old barracks from the mid-19th century.
1: And this is a brick building, a brick fort from the outside. It was constructed in 1794. We're on top of the island. This was constructed here on top of the old earthen works that were used during the Revolutionary War. Constructed here in 1794 because it offered the best vantage point and the most security. So you walk up to this brick star-shaped fort surrounded by a moat, cross over onto the inside, and it's just a piece of tranquility and serenity inside with beautiful chairs. And the entire structure is
0: lined with porches with white wooden rocking chairs and old Grecian columns. Tom, why are we recording this here? Let's stand over by that cannon that's just like sitting randomly over there in the corner. Cannon! Let's walk up to one of those
1: rocking chairs on the porch. So we are now
0: literally rocking in white rocking chairs on a porch in the shade of a tree. What we are lacking right now is actually big glasses of ice-cold lemonade, and maybe an old-timer to tell us a few stories. If we look around carefully, Greg, we might
1: find an old-timer. So this structure, as we mentioned, was constructed in the 1790s, but then in 1800, when the island was transferred to the federal government, this was renovated again between 1806 and 1809 in more substantial brick and stone, and it was actually given a new name for a while.
0: Um, Its new name was Fort Columbus. The original and current name is Fort Jay, named for John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and one of the co-authors of the Federalist Papers with James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. However, around the end of the 18th century, he became rather unpopular politically, so the name of this particular fort was then given a new name, Fort Columbus, named for Christopher Columbus. Although I don't know what he has to do with this place, not that. Much, actually.
1: Maybe it was just named for Columbus, Ohio, which was very in vogue at the time.
0: But thanks to the Secretary of War, Elihu Root, uh, who was a Secretary of War during the administration of Theodore Roosevelt, and he brought a lot of innovations out here. He was responsible for all the landfill, which I mentioned earlier. He was a big fan of John Jay, so he brought that name back.
1: So we left our tranquil spot on the porch in the shade, and we're crossing through the center of the fort. Now, we've climbed all the way up to one of these ramparts. We're peeking over the top. We're not allowed to climb up on it. But you can see, peeking over the grassy knoll, you can see cannons off in the distance pointed towards Battery
0: Park. And you, you can see where they would have installed other cannons up here. I really need to reinforce how extraordinary it is that this is so close to Manhattan and Brooklyn. Like, from where we're standing, because it's pretty high. And there's cannons right over there to the right. I can see the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. I mean, I can see almost where my old apartment used to be. It's kind of extraordinary. And of course, downtown Manhattan. And what feels so unusual about being in this spot right now, Greg, is that there's almost nobody else here. So this, I guess, is the most dynamic and unusually shaped fort. The star, if you will, of the the (laughs) island's forts. In more ways than one. However, let's go over to the other fort that's slightly newer, that's positioned very strategically at the water's edge. And that would be Castle Williams. Let's head over there. And as we're
1: climbing back down the uh, ramparts, Greg, and we're passing by the, uh, the inside of the fort, what's crazy is, is you can just peek into the windows and see these old, they look like old apartments, these old dwellings where various people have lived
0: as patients in a hospital or as soldiers in a barrack. Well, that's how much of Governor's Island is. Although these buildings, you can't go in most of them. They are closed to the public. You can certainly peek in and sort of look into another world. And another time. And
1: we've walked up to
0: Castle Williams,
1: which was constructed between 1807 and 1811. A mostly circular fort built of brick and sandstone. And most of it is three levels high. 320 degrees of that circular design are three levels tall with slots for cannons. Enough slots to fit 103 cannons, which could fire out at 320 degrees out into the harbor.
0: So this was constructed around the same time as... Castle Clinton over in Battery Park, Castle Clinton. I always mistakenly believe that they're kind of similar. But Castle Clinton... Uh, because is... of the name. Because they're oh, both right, castles. Right. But And actually they're built by the same person. But Castle... Clinton is completely circular because, of course, when it was originally constructed, it was in the middle of the water. Remember that? and you Right. A little, connected a bridge. by a bridge. Right. But this is not completely circular. It, it appears that way when you're approaching from the water. But in fact, as you said, it's 320 degrees.
1: And we have to remember that so much of Governor's Island today is landfill. In fact, more than half of it. So when this was constructed in the first decade of, of the 1800s, uh, this was constructed on the rocky edge of, of the island jutting out into New York Harbor so standing here looking at this we have to imagine that all of this stuff to our left here was just not here we, were, we would have been on the edge of the island let's head
0: inside so we've now stepped inside Castle Williams and it really is a wonderful and unusual change of pace because it looks like you really are like in a penitentiary or something
1: and when you say inside, we're, we're standing in an open-air center of this place still standing in the sun with some unusual sounds.
0: Oh yeah, this is an audio installation by Ed Osborne, and and yeah, so it's creating this, these bell sounds, it's creating kind of a haunting, unsettling feel while you're in here, which is really great. Of course, it was a defense in the early 19th century, but by the mid-19th century, this was actually a prison, and it actually remained more or less as a prison for a few decades afterwards, but it's of course best known for being a prison during the Civil War, where Confederate soldiers were crammed in here hundreds at a time. As as you walk
1: around on the, on the ground level, you will see rooms that are open, former cell rooms that you can just uh, step into. And let's go in one yeah, now. Let's do it now, yeah.
0: And it smells like a, a cellar room, doesn't it? It is a, a dungeon feel almost. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm in a set of Game of Thrones maybe. It's interesting because we're seeing a space that was
1: built for defense. And you see these windows that were built to give perspective and also to uh, hold cannons. In fact, on upper floors, some of the windows are large enough to hold two cannons. And they'd be later retrofitted with bars when this would switch over to its use as a prison.
0: In between its use as a defense and a prison, it was for army recruits. If you joined the army in the 1840s, this might have been where you stayed and this is where you trained. And remember, Greg, that even
1: though this was built as a defense, and even though it had more than a hundred cannons sticking out, protruding from its windows none of those cannons were actually ever shot out into New
0: York Harbor for defense. I guess it worked. This was more of a posturing, if you will, a deterrent, and certainly one that was quite effective. So imagine this place during the Civil War, very tense, but actually in the early years of the Civil War, when this was a prison and they transported Confederate soldiers here, at least in the early days, the soldiers were treated quite well. I actually have a quote from a journal of one of the Confederate soldiers who was held here at Castle Williams. You just happened to bring along a journal? Yeah, you know, I always come prepared, right? So he kind of enjoyed his time here, I mean, as one could. Quote, We have a splendid view of New York, Brooklyn, Jersey City, and all the surrounding both North and East River, and anything that is going on in the Bay. We could not have chosen a better place for imprisonment if we had made our own selection." But the problem is, is, as time went on and there were more Confederate soldiers and people were getting really sour and the war was not wrapping up very quickly, that conditions here actually got really poor and you know diseases would spread through really rapidly. And so as a result, hundreds would be crammed into these cells and there was a great many deaths to, to disease and just the overall pitiful condition of the place.
1: We've just stepped back out into the courtyard of the fort What's unusual is that you're standing here and looking at the structure that was built in the first decade of the 1800s, and yet there's so many new additions. There's new cement, there's new windows on the second and third floors. This is a
0: structure that in its 200-year history has served so many different purposes. So it starts out as a fort with cannons. Then it becomes a recruitment center and a barracks for for young soldiers. Then a prison during the Civil War and afterwards. And then various administrative functions. Flash forward to the 1970s. So that's when the Coast Guard would make its home here. This was a community center. There was a daycare. In one of these buildings. I don't know where exactly, but I find that a quite quite a change of pace. I hope that they chose a cheerier cell for those children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so now we've just stepped out of Castle Williams, but I have one more anecdote about this place that I wanted to save for the end as we left. Oh, how dramatic. Okay. Reveal. So this was, of course, a prison, as we've stated, where thousands were kept for several decades, most notably during the Civil War, Confederate soldiers. This was also a place where executions happened. And so I have a story from the New York Times in February of 1865 about the military execution of a bounty jumper. What's a bounty jumper again? So during the Civil War, when there was a draft, you know, you could buy your way out of the draft with money by hiring someone else to take your position. Right. So that was the bounty, like the $300 or whatever. So a bounty jumper was someone who just took the money and ran. So a series would take a series of these assignments, but then never show up.
1: Which is a pretty serious offense. And so they were executing somebody for bounty jumping here in
0: Castle Williams. In fact, 150 years ago, uh, a man by the name of James Devlin was executed here by firing squad. Mr. Devlin was executed actually along the shore on the other side, but it's too windy to record there. So, but essentially he met his end just a few feet away from here as the New York Times said, quote, all of the inhabitants of the island, both male and female, including many children, appeared to have assembled to witness the execution boys and girls from 10 years of age upward were to be seen passing through the crowd to obtain a good view of the tragedy the excellent arrangements of the military however prevented too near an approach but the eagerness of the women to witness the shooting was most disgusting so they essentially executed him right on the shore and executed him right next to his coffin which is especially morbid and grim So we're moving on to something cheerier uh,
1: through the wind and along the main road that passes right in front of Castle Williams. And we're heading down a lovely tree lined street and we're walking toward perhaps the island's grandest building and toward more of the residential quarters of the island. And on our left side are lovely three-floor brick buildings, Victorian-era homes with big front porches that, at the time, would have been waterfront property, because everything to our right side, to the south of the island, is landfill that would be added in the early 1900s. So it's fun to walk along this stretch and just to imagine that these front porches would, would look out to the water.
0: So right now, we're standing in this incredibly large, arched passageway that cuts through Legate Hall. This crosses over from the regimental row or the old part of the island crosses over to the new part of the island. So you can imagine this building as sort of the gateway in between the two parts. And all that area where the new development's happening, where these restaurants and this park with these winding paths and everything, that actually was the area where New York's very first airstrip was. Everything to the south of here, or is basically the cone so going back to this ice cream cone oh, analogy right. yeah is landfill that was created in the early 1900s using excavations from the new york subway so when they were digging all of those tunnels they just brought a large portion of that earth and used it to build this sizable area of of governor's island So one of the first important uses of that landfill was as an early airstrip. And we're talking at the very beginning of the invention of flights and the people who invented it. In fact, Wilbur Wright flew one of his early flying machines from an airstrip here in 1909. So it was associated with, uh, with early flight when this building, Leagut Hall, which was planned you know, around in 1905, around in that area. And the original design is by the acclaimed architectural firm of McKim, Mead and White. But for various reasons, it actually wasn't built until the 1920s. Now, here's where we get into a little drama involving the U.S. Army and Fiorella LaGuardia. Oh, Governor's Island drama. Do tell. (laughs) So Mayor LaGuardia was, of course, looking for a place to build an actual airport. Um, At this time, air travel was developing at a steady clip. So he was planning or wanted to have the municipal airport here. So New York's first airport could have been right here in front of us. Can you imagine how easier the commute would be to the airport had it been here? Well, the problem is, is that the army desperately needed this hull. And they decided that they wanted to build it lengthwise through the island. So, so it kind of is the border between the ice cream and the cone, if you look at it on a map, right? The edge of the cone problem with that is that there's no way you could build an airstrip if there's this gigantic building blocking any kind of like you know planes couldn't take off and land properly because the strip wouldn't be long enough and because you had this gigantic building in the way so LaGuardia got angry at the army and thought that they were trying to, to thwart his plans to build an airfield here of course as we know LaGuardia ended up building that airport out in Queens so we're still standing here in this hallway, this passage through from the old to
1: the new sections of, of Governor's Island. And it's this structure here, this building that
0: caused LaGuardia Airport to be built in Queens instead of right here. Yeah, it's kind of extraordinary, right? Although with hindsight, obviously airports are so big and planes are so large, this would have been terribly inadequate for an actual modern airport. You know, it just would have been outdated within a decade. Never to be
1: confused with that wonderful and accessible airport that is known as today's LaGuardia. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, that's another podcast. So, Tom, let's actually head over to a large bell. A bell? You'll see what I mean. So we are actually sitting on a bell, or actually we're sitting on a buoy that has a bell on it. And Greg just (laughs) rang that bell. In fact, ring it again, Greg. <laughs> that was not that, that wasn't so good so we're actually sitting in front of this t- a quaint little church called the Our Lady Star of the Sea Catholic Chapel. It's one of two churches that are out here on Governor's Island. So I guess they had built churches
1: on the island to serve the officers or the, the military personnel who were
0: stationed here? Yeah, so by the you know 1930s and 40s you had a lot of army officers and their families living out here. Then after 1965, you had the Coast Guard. And when they moved out here, a lot more people came. and was between 3,500 and 40 Four thousand people that lived here on Governor's Island. And so what this church represents to me was the sort of small town community that developed here during the 60s and 70s. It's almost like the TV show Under the Dome, where it was like a closed-off small town, and it seemed like a bubble world that was unlike anything else in, in New York City. So,
1: Well, it's an interesting
0: concept, a, a
1: village of 4,000 people living just a 10-minute ferry ride away from Lower Manhattan.
0: What's even more extraordinary is that, of course, you had to have all these amenities for these people who lived here. So, I mean, if, if you look to our right, do you actually see the old movie theater. I think that's from the 1930s. Wait, where? It's actually a couple buildings to the south there. You can, from here, you can actually see the box office. Ah, yeah, the old
1: ticket window right there. So we have a movie theater about 25 meters away,
0: a church right in front of us, the old regimental row behind us. Well, when the Coast Guard was here, all sorts of amenities came out here, including supermarket. There was a bowling alley. Tom, right over to our left, believe it or not, there was a Burger King out here. What? Where? (laughs) Right over there. And not only is it a Burger King, it was a Burger King that sold beers and that you could get pitchers of beer and sit and enjoy your Whoppers while you're living in this extraordinary small town, this Mayberry, if you will. But alas, the Burger King, with its pitchers of beer, are no longer here. Has the building actually been removed? Yeah, actually a lot of those constructions were demolished entirely. And today it's a large open field. There are many of the more historical structures remain, but I think some of the newer buildings of less architectural interest... Such as a Burger King. the Burger King have been taken away. Though historically notable in that they served
1: beer by the pitcher. (laughs) So we're we're walking now down a little brick lane just to the side of St. Cornelius's Chapel. And I've got to say, Greg, that this feels a little bit trippy because what we stumble upon is this little brick pathway that is lined with darling two-floor yellow wooden homes with lovely front porches, all of them facing this leafy green.
0: Where are we? So this is an area called Nolan Park and a row of houses, And this, to me, is the most surreal part of the island. You thought that standing in a fort with cannons is pretty surreal next to Manhattan. This is even stranger, because it's like it's taken from an old Victorian street, almost undisturbed, Today, many of these buildings are the home for art groups, music groups. But for a lot of the early years when this was taken over by New York City and was opened up for a place to come visit, you could actually wander around some of insides of some of these buildings, which was quite a trip indeed. So this
1: opens up onto a lovely village green, and we are surrounded by these, these small homes. So we have artists drawing caricatures on one side. We have somebody playing an upright bass on the left in front of the Sculptors Guild. This is an island of artists today, and the city has done a great job of giving many artistic groups homes out here and making the artists part of the attraction, part of the reason that people come out to visit the island on the weekends. So I think Greg has a story for us, but we're going to walk past these homes. Walking past another performance on our right, people
0: gathered and park benches, picnicking underneath the trees on our left. I feel like I'm in the 1960s. There's people just laying out in blankets playing folk music, playing the banjo. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, So we've arrived at one of the oldest houses that's on Governor's Island. It's called various things, the Commanding Officer's Quarters or the Admiral's House. It's a little set off from the rest of the houses with these large porches, these old Victorian styles. Well, this is more of a Federalist style with large white columns, six of them. That would be typical of fancy mansion styles from the 1840s. It was actually built in 1843. Currently, there's a man
1: playing the banjo and his friend with green hair singing
0: along next to him. (laughs) Well, a group of people with loftier titles, I believe, would have been here in 1988. For this was the site of a historic meeting between President Ronald Reagan, Vice President George Bush, and also Mikhail Gorbachev president of the soviet union now tom i just happen to have a declassified government memorandum about the very conversation that occurred here it happened from one
1: wait 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 you just (laughs) happen to bring along a declassified memorandum about this it's declassified seriously memorandum of conversation so
0: oh, it looks secret has been scratched <laughs> off. How did I get my hands on this? I'll never tell. Gorbachev was in town to speak for the UN, and I mean it's 1988, so it was near the sort of crumbling of the Cold War, and of course the Berlin Wall would fall the following year. So Gorbachev was in town speaking with the UN. Part of the reason for the meeting is Reagan kind of wanted to pass off Bush because, of course, Bush was going to be the incoming president. He had just Won the election one month before that. So, for 30 minutes, the three of them met inside this building and had a bit of small talk. But to quote the declassified memorandum, if I will, Gorbachev joked about the weather, said each time they met, the weather got better. The president replied jovially that we had arranged that. This was classified? <laughs> well, then, then there's some substance. Turning to substance, Gorbachev said he'd hoped what he had said at the UN had not contained surprises because he it was a, a very startling speech that he had given at the time. Quote, he had wanted to address the logical constructions of what had been done in recent years as a matter of real policy. This was their fifth meeting, unquote. This, of course, would be their last meeting because then Bush would take over and the world would change after that. And it was right here in this extraordinary building, which today is actually open for visitors and you can tour around in the building unlike some of the others which are now given over to these organizations or closed to the public this one is doors are open for visitors And that takes us up to the end of the
1: 1980s. Why don't we now jump forward to the new section? We've spent all this time roaming around the ice cream portion of this cone. Let's go down to the cone and see what
0: the city has developed in just the past couple of years. This whole walk we've spent going through Governor's Island's past. Now let's go towards its future. I'm going to suggest, Greg, that we go back
1: through the trees, retrace our way along Admiral's Row, and... Make our way back to Leagut Hall, which today offers a variety of dining options. Greg, maybe we can
0: pick up a little sandwich or a chicken Caesar wrap. If it doesn't blow out of our hands, that is. Watch out for those flat iron winds. So, Greg, we made
1: it back over to Liggett Hall, and uh, we crossed through to the new side, and
0: it's kind of an oasis. So, this is completely different. Yeah, this is the cone part of the ice cream cone, and it is partially open to the public. We're recording this in 2015. By next year, the whole place should be open. The Hammock Grove and Play Lawn are the two principal areas. And essentially, it's just slightly sloping paths through various different kinds of foliage obviously it's all very new because it's all just been planted what I kind of think is really interesting is on the old side of course you have big old trees and very tall buildings that are sort of creating a sort of a density over here it's all quite flat so it's bright open skies you can even see if you're walking in to this area and you look over to your left you can actually see as there is right now Ocean liners that are docked over in Red Hook, so you can see gigantic boats over there, just to tie you back to the old seafaring days of this area and of Buttermilk Channel.
1: And we're looking at these these parks and these new newly planted gardens and rolling hills. When we recorded our last show on Governor's Island back in 2007, this entire area was still filled with concrete
0: and brick uh,
1: dormitories.
0: Yeah, it was closed to the public, and almost all of that is completely gone. There's still evidence of some buildings, as you can see over to the left. But these were the old Coast Guard barracks, and most of them are completely gone, uh, completely cleared away for this brand new park development.
1: So as of 2015, there are two sections of the park that are open. The hammock grove that you walk into with its winding paths. And just beyond that, the play lawn, which hosts a variety of different festivals. Today, it's hosting a music festival. Now, just beyond that, the part of the park that's still under construction is something that's called the Four Hills. These are four hills that are man-made,
0: built upon landfill that came itself from Governor's Island. And although I'm this part is very, very pleasant and I, I look forward to wandering these very paths, I see over there that there's a little beer garden, Tom, so why don't we why don't we go investigate that? Mm, let's and. do it. <laughs> and then we'll wrap it up. We can't go to the Burger King, but we can <laughs> go to the <laughs> yes. beer garden. So we have just finished our jaunt around Governor's Island, and uh, we are resting on the west side. And Tom, I mean, in the history of recording this show, I have never recorded anything and stared straight at the Statue of Liberty. But that is, in fact, something you can do because of these breathtaking views along the western edge of Governor's Island.
1: They have a promenade, and here we are just sort of making our way back up from Liggett Hall and from the the food court there over along the water Uh, There are people going by us on bicycles, many people strolling along. There are two people on the same bicycle, not even a tandem. I don't know what you call that, but it's true. Lady Liberty's off on your left, New Jersey across the way in the southern tip of Manhattan. It's a beautiful walk, and you can indeed walk around most of the island right now, the part at least that is not under construction at the southern tip.
0: Well, hopefully our little experiment here was we were able to show Governor's Island in a different way because it's changed drastically over the past few years and it really contains almost every era of New York City history. And on another note, even if somebody isn't terribly interested in either New York
1: or military history, it still offers a great escape from the city and it's easy to access. So we'll just stroll along back to the ferry to head back to Manhattan, but we hope that you've enjoyed your trip. We'll be posting many photos from the history of Governor's Island
0: on the blog that's BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, go to iTunes and leave a short review. And a special thanks to all of the listeners who have joined us now
1: on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can show your support for the show and have access to lots and lots of patron-only
0: special audio downloads. Thanks for joining us on this adventure through Governor's Island. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.